Welcome to the Holistic Business Podcast, where healers, makers, mystics, and other weirdos who don't quite fit the mold learn how to grow businesses that sustain them and their communities without working all the damn time or feeling like they're selling out. I'm your host, Sarah M. Chapel, and as the founder of the Holistic Business Academy, I've helped thousands of small business owners just like you to grow supportive, holistic businesses. Now, it's your turn. Degrowth is an economic concept that is increasing in popularity on the political left. The idea is that, counter to the claims of technocrats and capitalists, more growth cannot solve problems that stem from growth itself, like global warming and environmental collapse. These issues are due to growth, and it's absurd to posit that more of the thing causing the harm will solve it. Many of these concepts already exist within indigenous knowledge frameworks and are now being explored and, yes, colonized, uh, though there is a strong movement of decolonial degrowth in academic circles. When I first heard of degrowth, it intuitively struck me as true, not just on a macro scale, but also on a micro personal scale, as I have been coming to terms with something myself. I have been trying to grow my business to a scale that I don't actually want because I had internalized it as necessary and virtuous. My deeper thoughts on degrowth as an economic framework and some of the implications uh, will have to wait, <laughs> coming soonish to a lengthy essay near you. But how degrowth is impacting my business philosophy, that we can tackle today. It can be challenging to know what we actually desire. Our Holistic Business Academy members are familiar with this. One of the first exercises they encounter in the holistic business framework is to discern their needs and desires, both quantitatively and qualitatively. And, perhaps not surprisingly, folks find this hard. The needs, often guided by simple math and clear responsibilities, are easier to assess, even if it can be hard to admit that we actually need them to thrive. But desire that kernel of truth that stems from the very core of who we are, from the wholeness of all of our identities and possibilities, uh, what my friend and mentor Ren Zatopek would call our hallowed self, uh, that discernment is a challenge. Why? <laughs> because even more than money, desire is the currency of capitalism, and yours has been manipulated throughout the entirety of your life. The actual desire of the hallowed self is often buried beneath the expectations of family and caregivers, the manufactured obsessions of a consumer society, and the fear of death that is the heartbeat of our spiritually void, growth-at-any-cost socioeconomic environment. How can we know what we truly desire if the specter of financial ruin hangs over us like a sword of Damocles, threatening to destroy our lives not because of the power we hold, but because of our disenfranchisement? There is no lack of pseudo-desire to be found. Anywhere you seek, someone will be willing to tell you what you should want. And in business, a core mythos of our time, discovering your own desires is easily subsumed by the sheer weight of advice and admonishment. We are taught that growth is a requirement, a fact of economics, rather than a choice. If we do not keep growing the economy, horrific things will occur. What horrific things? That's not entirely clear, but this in turn affects how we think about business and what businesses are considered more real or valuable. In particular, small businesses and the derisively named lifestyle businesses are less valued than unicorns, which are fast-growth startups with artificially inflated valuations of a billion dollars or more. 
This means that at a certain revenue level, much of the coaching, advice, and strategy that is presented to ambitious business owners online is coming from the hyper-growth model. Because who wants a nice lifestyle when you could be the next Bezos or Musk? And even if you don't know that you want these things, or even if you know you don't want those things, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's in your feed. You are consuming that business model as the platonic ideal. In the past year, I found myself in a place I've been before in my business, on the precipice of the kind of growth that a founder is supposed to dream of. It started to feel possible, and in the past, I decided not to pursue it. I didn't have the business model that I wanted to grow in that way. But this time I dove in. Growth was, after all, what I had been preparing for. I was ready to scale. Growing a business activates many of my skills, but also delights some of my less well-adjusted traits, such as being competitive and having a maladaptive desire for recognition. Whether those traits are innate or a product of being raised in the United States in the 80s and 90s, I really don't know. <laughs> but they are activated by the myth of business success, the winner-takes-all paradigm that I don't actually believe in or value, but find myself participating in almost as if sleepwalking my way to success. Discerning desire is about awakening. It requires shining the light of consciousness into the messy dark of our decision-making, the inherited and implanted programs that we're running in our operating system. True desire is so elusive because the illusion of conscious decision can feel so much like the real thing. The relief of action can feel like clarity. The anxiety of doing something that is counter to your values can feel like excitement and purpose. There are messages in our body, but translating them is a skill in itself, and we often read the words wrong. What do you think of when I say growth? Seriously, write it down. Well, not if you're driving. <laughs> I think of more, inevitable, better, progress, safety, acknowledgement, fame, security. I just wrote that out when I was drafting my notes for this episode that they weren't planned. Those are the words that pop up in my head. What do you notice? So none of the things I wrote are inherently true. They are assumptions. They are indoctrinations. They are cultural views. They are not truths. In fact, growth has only recently become a key measure of economic health. In his meta-review of four degrowth books in the London Review of Books, Jeff Mann writes that, quote, even as late as 1946, F.Z. Domar, one of the founders of modern growth theory, could remark that the rate of growth was a concept which had been little used in economic theory, end quote. 1946, not that long ago. Growth as the compass of the economy is relatively new, yet it has fully captured our imaginations with many obvious and not so obvious consequences. So back to last year, to this inflection point. When my business hit a certain level of financial success, I took that as an indicator that it was time to grow. To make more money, yes, but really to get bigger, to bulk up. <laughs> more clients, more content, more team, more, more, more. <laughs> and to do that at scale, which is to say me doing less, less, less. I've been preaching the wonder of, of scalability for years now. Scalability in a business is about unbundling your time from revenue moving from beyond a one work widget equals one revenue widget paradigm and into uh, one where one work widget can create many multiples of revenue. I still favor this model, especially as someone with chronic mental and physical health issues. 
but there is something I did not expect that can emerge from scalability as the growth North Star, and that's a kind of self-imposed alienation. Karl Marx's alienation theory describes the process by which a laborer is made to feel estranged from the product of their labor, and ultimately from their own humanity. This theory is really applied to wage workers, which as a business owner, I'm not. Uh, But I believe that in a society without a social safety net, the precarious nature of small business ownership, especially in the middle class, can recreate some of those wage work paradigms. And yes, I realize I just referred to business owners as middle class, and some of you will inherently disagree with that. That's fine. I'm talking about like from a revenue perspective, (laughs) like how much money you actually make. Many small business owners, so while not actually wage workers, would fit into the idea of proficients, which is defined by economist Guy Standing as a class that includes, quote, small-scale businesses, consists of workers who are project-oriented, entrepreneurial, multi-skilled, and likely to suffer from burnout sooner or later, end quote. Uh, Standing also developed the idea of the precariat uh, as a way to describe workers who are defined by the precarious nature of their employment. And I'd venture that many small businesses actually fall into that bucket, especially when they're early growth stages, uh, the owners are not getting paid, they do not have non-wage remuneration like um, health insurance or paid time off, and they're often engaging in gig economy work in addition to their business work to survive. Standing says that uh, proficients are well-paid through their self-commodification, which reinforces my opinion that the line between small business proficients and precariat freelancer or gig worker is really murky, uh, particularly in the online business space. Regardless, (laughs) regardless of what class we want to put small business owners in, scalability taken to the extreme is literally an attempt to alienate labor from production, to separate the inputs from the outputs, to uncouple effort from outcome. I'm not convinced that doing it to ourselves makes it any less alienating. In fact, the so-called freedom to self-exploit in the marketplace seems to have increased the necessity of creating our own alienation as business owners because, well, everyone else is doing it and that's what we're competing against. Despite knowing this theoretical framework, I was still surprised by the effects that it had on me. In my attempts to grow the business and grow it fast, I removed myself from much of the day-to-day work. This is a pretty standard approach to growth. The CEO is not spending their time on routine tasks. They are focused on highest impact activities like partnerships, big clients, and overall strategy and long-term vision. But I didn't like it. I didn't like not knowing our customers' names. I didn't like not having a finger on the pulse of our social media and messaging. I missed, to borrow an overused Silicon Valley word, building. I missed participating in the impact of my labor. Trying to predict the future and keep my focus on the possibility of the business rather than the activities of the business placed me within a theoretical framework that somehow degraded my experience of what I had created. It became all about growth, about some future arrival point rather than the pleasure of the process of creation. As our clients know, during this time, I was still doing all sorts of product fulfillment things. I have created a new program. I've sold plenty. I've continued to do my coaching calls and other core deliverables. But my focus was on keeping my head above the clouds, pursuing this vague growth. And then something unexpected happened. I burned out. (laughs) In some very real ways, I spent a lot of last year working fewer hours than I ever have in my business. I did not expect burnout. I expected brilliance. I thought that my clear forward focus, decreased workload, and mission clarity would open the doors of my mind to unforeseen ideas and possibilities that would lead to this magical growth I was seeking. Instead, I crashed. 
In the classic anti-corporatist book Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher, the author explores what a Buddhist economics might look like. He describes the Buddhist approach to work and right relationship to work um, as having three functions. Quote, to give a man the chance to utilize and develop his faculties, to enable him to overcome ego-centeredness by joining other people in a common task, and to bring forth the goods and services needed for a becoming existence. There we go. The modern concept of a CEO, of holding the long-range vision for a company while being largely exempt from the day-to-day operations of the company, runs afoul of all three of those functions, at least in the way that I had internalized it and acted on it. By removing myself from the impacts of my labor, I actually was not able to utilize and develop my faculties. My mind started to atrophy within the overwhelm of inefficacy as I tried to steer my small ship in the absence of a relationship with our customers and my creations. Egocenteredness is definitely not overcome in this model, especially if you're not working with a C-suite style team of other advanced experts, which is unlikely in a small business. And did I bring forth any goods and services? I mean, kind of, (laughs) but it wasn't my focus. My focus was, as I said, on growth and only the growth of the company, not my own. It is an interesting, if not surprising experience to discover that by attempting to remove myself, my needs, my time, my humanity from the business that, well, I lost the positive benefits of my business on my humanity. I stopped viewing myself as a worker and started buying into some myth of superiority as a CEO, and that severed my relationship with what I produce. Growth as a vague, must-be-pursued, gotta-scale, need-to-be-a-unicorn, need-to-be-big, need-to-be-known, need-to-be-famous, need-more-more-more-beast is dehumanizing. It is counter to my values. It is not what I desire. I don't know if I could have discovered this another way. Maybe I had to go through the process in order to realize how deep the indoctrination was, how closely I was holding the belief that success is only filled by more. But I have discovered it. By March this year, I was a shell of myself, unable to take action, make decisions, hold any vision beyond avoiding my business at all costs. I couldn't touch it. It felt inert, dead, like I had killed the life force that sustained it when I withdrew myself in the effort to scale. To be clear, my boundaries with the business needed some adjustment, but I went too far, and so it starved it and myself of the actual brilliance of being a creator, of making things, of helping people. I also want to be clear that we have grown. (laughs) Revenue is up. (laughs) It's not that this didn't work. It just didn't work for me. Making more money is not enough for me, even when I need it to pay debts and try to create some semblance of stability in the face of collapse. And this is where desire comes in. If I don't believe in growth, what do I believe in? What do I desire? In that same book review, Jeff Mann writes, quote, models of degrowth are never just about rollback or shutdown, but a combination of purposeful downsizing and global redistribution, end quote. Degrowth is about putting human, animal, and environmental well-being above profit. And that mindset, I think, is the key to the next phase of my work and perhaps surprisingly the growth of my business. And while this idea of putting well-being first is not new to my work, you can see that in uh, my holistic business thesis in episode 198 of this podcast, I feel like the degrowth concept has created a stronger context for that approach by placing it within a global paradigm. Purposeful downsizing is the phrase that I keep coming back to, 
I made so many decisions last year based solely on seeking upsizing, seeking more, seeking bigger. Now I'm seeking less. <laughs> Our clients often hear me talk about how specificity and clarity leads to more sales. Somehow, my own dogmatic pursuit of growth overlooked this and created a vague and bloated business that was less effective and less meaningful. In particular, I'm doing the following. Uh, first of all, I'm clarifying. I'm clarifying our audience and the transformations we provide more specifically than ever. I'm getting more narrow. I'm getting more specific. This means we will probably end up losing customers, and that's okay. I am also reducing outputs that have no demonstrable impact other than creating noise. I'm not sure what specifically this will look like, but probably less social media, fewer emails, and more depth. I'm streamlining our processes. When you anticipate hiring a lot and hiring fast um, and growing fast, having everything in the business codified is a huge boon. But if you're going to be lean and agile, you need more flexibility. So I'm going to increase flexibility, streamlining what we do and how we do it so we can be more responsive. I'm also going to raise prices. <laughs> I have long kept our prices artificially low because the goal has been to work with as many clients as possible in our programs. The math works when I have hundreds, if not thousands of active customers. But if I am abandoning growth for growth's sake and considering the quality of the work and its impact on me more specifically, then we will likely work with fewer customers. Higher quality and fewer customers means higher prices. To be clear, I'm not saying that one cannot have an ethical or effective scaled online business. It's just that I no longer hold the vision for thousands and thousands of customers, at least not in our current model. There are other things I could envision doing where we would want to have thousands of people like a paid newsletter or something. But for our coaching programs, I don't think that's it. <laughs> Additionally, it's way past time that consumers in the West and the United States specifically reckon with the artificially low prices that we get for a variety of goods. I've been reading Aja Barber's work on fast fashion a lot recently, and much of that theory applies to online business or really any business too. If we want people to be paid properly and have proper working conditions, and we want to produce less and consume less, the cost of items will go up. It should. Artificially low prices encourage exploitation even in our businesses and of ourselves. So if I am unwilling to sacrifice myself on the altar of growth, that means that my prices have to reflect that. Um, finally, I'm doing what I want. <laughs> I've said it before, and I generally believe it is good advice, that your business is not here to amuse you. This is useful when we have our entire lives wrapped up in our businesses, and we find ourselves tinkering and changing things because we're bored, not because we're curious. But as one of our clients has on her website, I do now want my business to amuse me. My burnout gave me the space to reassert my identity outside of the business, and now I have robust interests, hobbies, and pursuits that add value to my life outside of work. But with that clarity of my identity, I am ready to play in the business. I trust myself in a way that I haven't in a long time. I want to be amused, and I think that will create more transformation and more joy for our clients. So global redistribution doesn't really map on to the idea of a small business degrowth, in my case directly, since we don't manufacture or have employees abroad. But I am thinking about the distribution of time and labor in the company and how to minimize the environmental impact of our work and reduce waste. The more we do, the more computing power we use, the more energy we use, all of this has an impact outside of our company. And it has an impact on me on the team. Hyper growth extracting from our lives and for what? 
I am not someone who believes that climate change and societal collapse will be prevented by individual aesthetic consumer choices, but as a business, there is more we can do to minimize our footprint and prioritize that the money we spend and tools we use are doing the same. Ultimately, this has awakened a desire for simplicity and agility. I want to be more responsive, to follow new ideas, to encourage creativity, and to seek just enough financial growth and, yes, clout, (laughs) for us to thrive. Because I do believe in thriving. I believe that every person on this earth should be able to not only survive but enjoy their lives, have the support and security to explore who they are, to live fully. And while our systems may not allow for the post-scarcity society we could already have, This small universe where my will is pretty darn powerful, my business, can model that. And that will not include endless growth for the sake of competing with people and companies that do not share my values. And I'm pretty darn sure that these shifts will actually lead to more revenue, because every time I act for my hallowed self in my business, it resonates with the clients that I'm here to help. So what do you need? And what do you desire? What will be enough in your business so that you are cared for? but not enacting values that you do not hold. As Schumacher's book title says, small is beautiful, and the concentric circles of care that your business can affect is more than enough to create change in your life, in your community, and in this world. Thanks for tuning in to the Holistic Business Podcast. Learn more about growing your holistic business by visiting us at holisticbusinessacademy.com. We'll see you next time.